Welcome back. I've, I've sent around a, a handout. It's, it's a sort of a top-level outline of what I want to look at today. A reminder to you, <clears throat> and, and I, I've had some offline conversations with, with a couple of you, and there, I, I understand there's, there's a, an eagerness, maybe even urgency, to tell us what we need to do. And those are good questions, but I want to encourage you that to, to be patient laying in a doctrinal foundation. As we've looked over the last two, <clears throat> looking last time at, at an anthropology of our children, how is it that we have received these children? How, in what capacity have we received these children from our Heavenly Father? These, these little ones that are in our house, from the time of birth until the, whatever time they leave our home, what do we know about them from the scriptures? And what is, what is our responsibility? I want to look today at the necessity of parental authority. And that may seem, at first blush, to be a no-brainer. And to some degree it is. But I want us to think more broadly than just our own households. Perhaps already in your home, I don't need to convince you, that parents need to be the ones in charge, not the terrorists. I mean, I mean the children. <laughs> but there's a couple of things we need to consider with that. Oh, first, is we have opportunities within our extended families, within the marketplace, our neighbors and others, to help think through these issues. Our culture does not understand authority. It tends to err on, on two extremes, either an abuse of authority, or a complete abrogation and dereliction of authority. Rarely, very rarely, do we find examples in our culture of benevolent, carefully administered, accountable authority. We just don't find it. It's rare. And so I want to provoke us as parents, as those who name the name of Christ, to think carefully about these issues. And so, and specifically with respect to our own, our own households, the households within our community of faith, why is it so necessary that parents actually exercise their authority? But there's a second issue that, that arises if we don't understand doctrinally here. We end up with a practical problem. How do you know if you're really in charge in your home? ever thought about that? Because we can talk a good game as parents. Yes, absolutely. We can read the scriptures, give our mental and verbal assent. Yes, parents should be in charge. Okay, why aren't you? Well, I am. Okay. Doesn't look like it from where I'm standing. You know, those, those kinds of, of things. So we, we want to be careful about, are we, are not, we want to be able to identify in our own home with our own children, what are some indications maybe that Parental authority is not being exercised, or maybe there are certain spheres, certain areas, where that authority isn't being exercised. God has established three primary spheres of authority. These are not, I think of this more of a Venn diagram than, than three absolute different circles, but the church, the civil authority, and, and the home. And God has designed or delegated his authority to accomplish very specific purposes. We want to think of authority 
as, as a tool or an instrument. Authority is, is not for the purpose or for the benefit of the one holding or wielding that authority. The benefit is for the ones under the authority. It, it's an instrument. It's a tool. So as parents, God has given you authority over your children to a particular end, for a particular purpose. And we looked at that in the, in the first session. Well, what are the reasons? What are the motivations for us as a parent? And, and one of those motivations is, of course, the glory of God. This is God's design. And all things that he has, has made and governed, when they run and operate according to his design, he's glorified in that. Uh, but also, we saw one of the, the chief motivations for us as parents is, is rescue. If we understand the fact that our children really are born dead in sin, then one of our chief motivators is as a rescuer, to help deliver their souls from hell. And we can say that as Calvinists even with a, good, with a straight face. We know we don't, in a soteriological perspective, we don't save our children. But God uses means. And he uses us as an instrument, and, that, and specifically the authority that he gives to us as parents. He doesn't use the instrument of us being a buddy or a pal. He uses the instrument of our authority for the good of our children. So I'm going to start with a few, with a few questions. I'm going, to, I'm going to put these out to you. Let's, let's kind of work through some of these, and then we'll, I'll give a, a brief lecture. We'll come back around and maybe revisit or refine some of the answers. Why must parents exercise loving and patient authority over their children? Just, just off the top of your head, what are some reasons? Don't look at the outline. What are some reasons that it's imperative for, for parents? And I'm not talking about just Christian parents, because remember, the family is not a uniquely Christian institution. It's part of the common kingdom. What are, what are reasons why it's necessary for parents to exercise authority in their home? Safety? Yeah. Order? Okay. What else? I'll give it to you after you answer the question. <laughs> what, what, are, what are reasons, biblical reasons, or just common reasons, common kingdom reasons, why it's necessary for parents to exercise authority? I'm sorry? Training? Yep. Well, why is training necessary? Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. So a selfish motive. I need someone to care for me. <laughs> there needs to be a su sufficient degree of mathematics so they can calculate my medications, right? <clears throat> okay. Sure. Right. Right. I, I know what he's. I was. Well, let me ask you this question: What happens if we undo or invert the authority structure in the home? What happens if, to use the expression, the inmates run the asylum? Chaos. Okay? What else happens? Societal breakdown. What else happens? Ha, ha, ha. 
<laughs> back to that safety issue. <laughs> Those, 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 those hospital bills keep racking up, huh? Can, yeah, can we? Do you get a dis? Do you do you do you get a discount if you prepay for stitches? Just it's like, can I just buy like a hundred stitches in advance and dole them out as I need them? <clears throat> Here's another question. Think of some things that might indicate in your own home or. Hypothetically, maybe someone else's home that might indicate that, that the authority as a parent is not being exercised appropriately or effectively. What are some indications of that? Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. A deference to the child, mm hmm. Yep, okay. Good. Lastly, and again, we'll come back to some of these. <clears throat> How should Christians think about and respond to abuse? Abuse of authority. We as Christians ought to hate it more than anyone. Because it inverts God's design. What God has used is given as an instrument for good. Uh, wicked men uh, will use for their own ends. And so we, as, as believers, more than anyone, ought to condemn that. <clears throat> I'm going to give you four reasons. To, back to the, to the first question. Why is parental authority necessary? Uh, or, or to phrase it in, in a more precise way, why must parents exercise loving and patient authority over their children? And the first answer, and this is an answer for, again, not just Christians, but for everyone, whether they acknowledge it or not, is that God commands it. We had a, we had a question in Sunday school this morning. It was kind of those why questions. And Kyle's answer was, because God commands it, right? Well, it's, that's a sufficient answer. That ought to be the end of the discussion in some ways. Uh, but, but God, and I think he gives us an example as a wise father, does go on to explain to us his reasons also. But let's think about what does God command with respect to parental authority? We see, first of all, and, and, and most comprehensively, the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And you might object, well, that doesn't say anything about parental authority. That's something about children obeying their parents. How do the children know that? How does a child know his duties to his parents? How does a child know his duty with respect to authority in general? Paul, the Apostle Paul, calls this the first commandment with a promise. That your days may be long in the land. That's not a specific promise to a particular child. Obey your dad, you'll live a long time. I mean, you might not die today, if that's the case, but it's not necessarily a promise in that respect. It was a covenant promise to God's people that if you will order, order your lives and submit yourselves to the structures of authority that God has put in place, you will prosper. God will bless that. Of course, in the epistles, we begin to see this, this fleshed out even more specifically. Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And then a parallel text in Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, 
And then Paul adds to this three verses later in verse 4, as, And you, fathers, do not, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, in the ancient Roman world, this fell under the category of what was known as a household code. And, and household codes were rampant. They were literally codified into law in Rome. And, and it was one overarching doctrine or mantra or philosophy that really drove much of what happened in the Roman Empire. And it was the doctrine of Pax Romana. You know what that is? Pax Romana? The peace of Rome. And basically, social order, social peace was paramount. And anything that undid that or threatened that was considered an offense against the state. And so the, the, the household codes were part of this, this doctrine of Pax Romana, but all it was about was keeping order. There was no sense of concern or care for subordinates, for slaves, bondservants, children, or wives. So in the ancient household codes, there would be instructions to children, obey your parents, to wives, obey your husbands, to masters, or to, to bondservants, obey your masters. But never in the ancient household codes were there instructions given to the superiors until Christ, until the New Testament. And so the language that Paul gives here, imagine yourself sitting in the congregation there in Colossae or in Ephesus, and, and hearing Paul's letters read. And so you're nodding along, because this, this, this makes sense to you as a Roman citizen, that there's going to be instruction about children obeying their parents. But there's instruction to fathers. And this would have been shocking. This, their ears would have perked up. Wait, we're not used to this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. There is a positive command laid upon parents in general and with an extra measure of responsibility given to the head of the household, the father. And, and what, what's, what, what we see as we, as we work through the pages of the Scriptures is we find out, kind of combined thinking of what we, we learned in the last session about the anthropology of children. What do they come into this world knowing? Nothing. What do they bring into this world? Sin. They're not able to govern themselves. They're not, they don't have the wisdom. They don't have the knowledge. They don't have the understanding. In fact, it's not, a, it's not an educational deficiency. They're dead in their sins. They're not able to do those things. And yet children have to know and have to learn, have to be trained, how does this world actually work? Who is God and, and how, how, has, how has God related to man? What are your responsibilities to God? What are your responsibilities to your neighbor? Children must learn things like sin has consequences. Disobedience is sin. And if your children don't learn this from their parents, from you, where are they going to learn that? If in the ordinary course of life, and sometimes we, we could get bogged down in the minutia because it's, it's, a, it's a daily battle with little ones, with toddlers, with, you know, four and five and six and 12-year-olds, and there's just, it, you feel like a parent, like you just whack-a-mole. It's, it's constant infractions all the time. And we're tempted sometimes to not help our children make the connection between their disobedience 
and an offense against God. And obviously, when they're a year old, even when they're two or three or four years old, they're not going to understand all of your theological stuff yet. They'll understand more than you think they do. But they're not understanding all those things yet. But what they will recognize is that my negative actions have a consequence. And even that theological truth is important for their little minds to begin to grasp. And see, we're tempted at this point as parents, and you hear the phrase sometimes, we always want to give them grace. And what we usually mean by that is we should be lenient and ignore sin. Or what we mean by that is, I don't feel like dealing with it right now. I'm going to give them grace. I see some of you smiling and nodding. <laughs> you recognize you, you, you've, you've, you've wrestled with this in your own heart, and you've also seen it in people that you, you know and love. But when we do that, what we're doing here is we're giving to our children a corrupted and inaccurate view of the world. We're teaching them. If we don't respond to their sin, we're teaching them that, that sin does not have consequences. And that's a perverted understanding of this fallen world, isn't it? Our children need to learn important lessons, even early in life, that you're not allowed to do whatever you want to do. You're not allowed to go wherever you want to go. You're not allowed to say whatever you want to say, whenever you want to say it. And, and we have this constant barrage that's, that's, that appeals to the human flesh that says, I should be able to say whatever I want to say, anytime I want to say it, go where I want to go, do what I want to do, and who should stop me? But is that really the world we live in? That's the social media world. It's a fake construct, but is that the actual world in which we live? That you can say whatever you want, and, and you don't wait till they're 18 or 16 or 13 and get their, their first Facebook or Instagram to try to train them at that point. Honey, it's not a good idea to just say whatever's on your mind. That needs to start when they're six months old, a year old. Even before it's audible speech, you're not allowed to just make whatever noise you want whenever you want. Um, the, 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 the world isn't governed by your impulses. In fact, it's not a good thing that your own flesh is governed by your own impulses. So we want to give our children an accurate view of the world, of themselves, but more importantly, of God himself. <clears throat> and in the scriptures, we see a pattern of both positive instruction and, and corrective discipline. Positive discipline which is instructive and corrective discipline. And both are necessary, and, and it's, it's beyond what I'm going to do tonight or this afternoon in terms of the ins and outs of positive and, and negative discipline, or positive and, and corrective discipline. But you need to have those categories, because as parents, that's what we're constantly doing. We're both instructing, and sometimes redirecting, encouraging, exhorting, and other times we're saying, no, that's wrong. That's out of bounds. That is sin. And, and if we don't do that, if we don't do both positive and corrective to instruct our children in righteousness, they, they have a distorted sense of what the world is really like. In our New Testament reading this morning, <clears throat> we read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I, I did not have this in my notes, but I, th I thought it was very helpful 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is speaking about himself. 
and he's writing to the, to the church at Thessalonica. And he says this in verse 12, or verse 11. He says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, and encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul... He was not their biological father. He was coming to them as a spiritual father, but he says, like a true father, like a good father, here's what I did. You know this. We exhorted each one of you. It means we, we, we encouraged you to godly behavior. We charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Now, we know from Paul's other letters what, what a charge from Paul looked like. It was often both negative and positive. So for example, in Ephesians 4, what did Paul, how did Paul charge the thief? Stop stealing. Right? But was that the end of Paul's charge to the thief? No. He said, but go and labor with your own hands. Work hard. Have an increase that you can share with others, which is where we get the pattern in our catechisms for the, the commandments. The commandments have an affirmative and a negative. What does the, the first commandment require? What does the first commandment forbid? As parents, we need to have that sort of rhythm with our children, our instruction. This is, this is a command of God upon us. God has given an explicit command to, to fathers and mothers both to instruct our children both positively and correctively. Our children need that correction. They need the consequences for their disobedience. Because, again, I don't think I have to persuade you. As you look around at the culture, what percentage, and I don't even know what it is, but what percentage of our culture doesn't understand there are consequences for your actions? And it's easy to see out there, and, and because it's extreme, and it's grievous, but in our own homes, it's, it's really not that hard to slip into a similar pattern. Or we think, well, our children are too young to understand consequences. No, they understand consequences just fine. They, even, even before they are able to verbalize something, they can understand a consequence. And despite all of its modern hype, positive discipline alone will not teach consequences. I, I phrase that carefully. Positive discipline alone. I didn't say positive discipline is bad. The Bible teaches both, doesn't it? Positive instruction. But if all we're doing to our children, or for our children, or with our children, is positive instruction, and there's no correction, there's no consequence, how will they learn that there are consequences for sin? I ran across a, a, an article from UNICEF, not recommending it, an article from UNICEF. This is the... United Nations um, Child and Family kind of committee and arm. There was a, an article on their website entitled, How to Discipline Your Child the Smart and Healthy Way, subtitled, Positive Discipline for Better Mental and Physical Health and a Happy Childhood. And here's a quote from the article, Rather than punishment and what not to do, the positive discipline approach puts an emphasis on developing a healthy relationship with your child and setting expectations around behavior. The good news for every parent is it works. 
Well, again, positive parenting is not out of bounds. It's encouraged in the Scriptures. We need to instruct our children. But if all we do is instruct, <clears throat> and there is no rebuke, there is no consequence, we're not teaching them accurately how this world really works. Let me turn with me to the book of Exodus. <clears throat> book of Exodus, chapter 34. Parents, do we, do we give enough thought to the fact that the way in which authority is expressed in our home or not expressed in our home is necessarily training and teaching our children something about the nature of God himself? And that may sound like an over-the-top statement, but, but reason through this. Your children will know no other authority besides you. At a minimum, until they're school age and you send them somewhere, but they won't understand authority outside of their home. That's, that's the, by God's design, that's the first and chief place where they learn about the nature of authority itself. In Exodus chapter 34, here's the scene where <clears throat> Moses has already broken the command, uh, the, not the commandments, broken the tablets. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and and. Chapter 34 begins with the Lord saying to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain, and no one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two new tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on the Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Some, some quick observations. What do we learn in this passage about God? What do we learn in Exodus 34 about God? What does he say about himself? He's compassionate. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Praise be to God. This is, who he's, this is what he said about himself. But if we stop there, do we have 
an accurate picture of God? Is that all that he says about himself? God says also about himself, he will by no means clear the guilty. That he will visit the iniquity and the transgression and sin upon generations to come. Now he's not saying that the children will pay the price of their father's sins. What he's saying is, in the context of these commandments written down, this was a covenant with God's people. And to the degree the parents did not pass that on to their children, children would be ignorant of the the commands of God and would have nobody to keep them. What happens when children know or suspect that their parents really aren't serious? Do those children grow up with an accurate view of God? Because God says He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And also, He doesn't overlook sin. He doesn't clear the guilty. And so we as parents, if our children become convinced that dad's not really serious when he says no, mom doesn't really mean it until she says no for the 47th time. We're not giving our children an accurate picture of the way the world works, but also, most importantly, it's a distorted image of God. What happens spiritually when children think they can sin and not have consequences? Certainly, we're concerned about things like their safety and and the the order of our homes, and, and all those are good things, but it's not the ultimate thing, is it? Our chief motive as a parent is their soul. And, and we want them to know God. We want them to know, have an accurate view of God. And even before they're, young, they're old enough fully to comprehend the glories of the gospel, they still need to have an accurate picture of the way the world really works. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the commands of God, the fact that these commands given to parents to exercise authority in your home, the fact that these are given by by explicit command by God to, to, to us as parents, that ought to be enough. But in his kindness and his wisdom towards us, God gives us other reasons as well as because I said so. And again, I think that's instructive. Sometimes as, as, as a father and a mother, that will have to suffice to your children, because I said so. But hopefully, as wise parents, we're helping our children to grow in wisdom, and we're, we have opportunity to explain to them, particularly as they get older, here's the reason Daddy has said this. This is the reason Mommy has prohibited this. And so they began to grow in wisdom. There's a second reason I want to put before you, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point because we spent more time on it last time, but the second reason that that parents, that it's necessary for parents to exercise authority is because children are are not able to govern themselves. Not only would they be in the ER constantly, not only would they starve, um, but they don't have the wisdom to govern themselves. We saw last time, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. And foolishness throughout the Proverbs is not just silliness, it's sin. 
Foolishness is sin. And, and the fact that the, the, the Proverbs say that it's bound up refers to a sort of inward conspiracy with a child against his own nature. His sin nature conspires against him. And we know this is true, even as mature adults. Even as mature Christians, you know this is true. The Apostle Paul certainly did in Romans 7, didn't he? The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. O wretched man, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, if that's true for an apostle, how much more is it true for an unregenerate child who does not have the Spirit of God dwelling within him? Rescue of our children is a chief motivation for our parent as a parent. So one of the, the main reasons that we must exercise authority as parents is because our children are simply not capable of governing themselves. And it's not right for us to expect them to. In fact, it's an injustice to our children if we expect them to exercise authority over themselves. And it seems silly to me, frankly, that, that many of the educational models that, I, that I've seen will freely recognize that a child can't protect himself. That a child is not capable of providing for himself. But they still seem to think the child has within himself a knowledge sufficient to govern himself. The parents are necessary for protection, for provision, to get him to school. Parents are necessary to get the books and the supplies that he needs. But in terms of how a child expresses himself, he's, he's got the wisdom he needs to govern that. How he identifies sexually, he has the wisdom in himself to govern that. And those are extreme examples. But there are far more that on the surface are less extreme, but they're no less toxic. This idea that children have within them the, the, the wherewithal, the ability to make their own choices, even from a very young age. And I heard recently, um, kind of a repeated private discussion to me, that 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 if children are left to their own, young children, if they just let them just eat whatever they want, and eventually it'll sort itself out. Eventually they'll learn, because their, their bodies will tell them what to eat, what's good for them, and their, their own... But that's, that's based on an evolutionary framework. They're not, a, they're not a cow that naturally knows it should eat grass. Of course, any rancher will tell you, put a cow in the wrong pasture, it'll get himself in trouble. Sheep will get themselves in trouble. They don't know what to eat. So this, but it's this idea that, that, that these, these little ones that we have are basically maybe higher forms of animals, but they have an instinct that will kick in if we just sort of laissez-faire, hands-off as parents. Brothers and sisters, that's an absurd example. I think it's absurd. But we, we find the same kind of thinking, the same root, in a lot of different ways. And, and it is, it's, it's the dominant dogma in our government schools. It's even the dominant dogma in most of you know, kind of this pre-K kind of educational models. It's self-governing. Children just need to explore. They will sort things out. They know what's best for them. They don't. They don't. It's important for us as parents to exercise that authority. There's a third reason. I do want to spend a little bit of time on this, this third reason, and it's a valid one according to the Scriptures. Our public witness. 
our public witness. Now, the, the, the first two were dealt primarily with the common kingdom. Children don't know what the world is really like, and it's the job of the parents to teach them that. Children are capable of wise self-government. It's the job of the parents to instruct and encourage and exhort and correct them so that they will understand those things. But uniquely for the Christian home, it is also necessary for us to exercise our authority as part of our public witness. We turn to the book of Titus, Paul's letter to, the, to Titus. In Titus chapter 2. Now, the first chapter of Titus, Paul says, Timothy, our Titus, I've left you here in Crete because, and I'm paraphrasing here, it's a mess. And you've got to put what remains in order. There are false teachers, there's false teaching. Even those who claim to understand the law of God don't understand the law of God. And the, the fruit of that is, he closes chapter 1 with, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Tell us what you really think, Paul, about the situation in Crete. And he quotes even their own, said that the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul says, you know what? It's true. That's a true statement. So then he gets to chapter 2, and he says, but as for you, Titus. Now he's speaking pastorally here, but, but work through what Paul's teaching. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What is fitting? What is suitable? What matches with sound doctrine? Older men are to be, and there's, in, the, in the structure of the text, is there's, there's a to be verb and then a list of adjectives. So older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to be, it's one word in the Greek, kylodidaskalos, they are to be teachers of good. It's an adjective, not a verb. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Did you catch that? That the word of God may not be reviled. Paul says, what goes on in our home is a high-stakes matter. Older women, older men, younger men, younger women, not obeying the Word of God puts at risk that the Word of God can be reviled. It means mocked, scorned. Because the outsiders look at, at the Christian home, and you're no different than the rest of us. Why would we listen to your God? Why would we follow your Savior? Why would we read your book? But he doesn't stop there. Look down at eight, verse 8. Or he's in verse 7. Show, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. He, he's speaking to Titus, but in the context of the whole assembly, and saying, if your homes are ordered according to the Scriptures, your enemy will have nothing to say about you. There will no way to scorn you, to mock you. Then in verse 10, he's speaking now of bondservants and their masters. In verse 10 he says, the bondservant is not, to, is, is not pilfering, but showing all good faith, 
so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. See, Paul's very concerned as he's instructing Titus. In the mess of Crete, the things that you teach, where is the very first place that your sound doctrine ought to bear good fruit? In your home. And he tells us implicitly, the world is watching. Then he'll give verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself, us, or gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And again, where do those good works first show up or not? In our homes. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. When it comes to the training of, of young men and young women, where do you find a more profound influence, for good or bad, than in the home. And, and if we think, well, we'll wait until they're older teenagers to train them what a good young man should look like and a good young woman should look like. It's going to be much harder, isn't it? From the very earliest of ages, we're, we're training them in these things. What are, what are the kinds of things that the, the young men were to be taught to be self-controlled what age do you start teaching that? <laughs> um, the younger women to love their own husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husband. When, when do you start teaching those things? as they say in the South, from the get-go, right? From the very beginning, we have to teach these things. It's not, it's not restricted to just Paul in Peter's first epistle. In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, he says, Beloved, I begged you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that, they, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter's saying, our Gentile neighbors ought to look at the Christian and the Christian home and see something unique, see something distinctive. And lastly, our fourth reason that it's imperative for us as parents to exercise a godly authority in our home. Social order. It's social order. We're thinking now beyond just our own homes and beyond, beyond our witness as Christians, we have a responsibility to our community as well. Not only our spiritual community, our church community, but Conroe, Montgomery County, the state of Texas, the, the, the whole world. <clears throat> it is our job as parents. We, we can't ultimately save our children in an eternal sense. We, we know that. We trust that God will do that and that he uses means to accomplish it. But we are responsible 
to train our children to live as responsible citizens. Again, to be self-controlled. In the institution, the institution of the family is not uniquely Christian. The family is a creation ordinance. And, and I think back to the garden. We see the creation of Adam, and then see the creation of Eve. We have the first marriage, and that is, is often the case. Shortly after marriage, children come. Only between Adam and Eve's marriage and the arrival of their children, a cataclysmic event happens, the fall. And we don't have to wait three generations or ten generations or fifty generations to see the effects of sin, do we? The very first generation. We witness the devastating effects of sin where Cain rises up and kills his brother. In Keech's catechism, <clears throat> Keech has added a question to our, our Baptist catechism. He says, what then is the purpose of the law since the fall? They've been working through the Ten Commandments in the catechism. He says, what's the purpose of the, of the law since we're not able, no, no, no man is able perfectly to obey it, what's the purpose of it? Remember the text in Exodus 34? God says, cut two new tablets. Solemnly teach these things. Because God's going to hold you responsible. He will not clear the guiltless. What then is the purpose of the law since the fall? Here's the answer. The purpose of the law since the fall is to reveal the perfect righteousness of God. That is, people may know his will for their lives and the ungodly, being convicted of their sin, may be restrained therein and brought to Christ for salvation. There is a restraining of sin within a whole culture when the law of God is upheld. The law can't convert someone. The law doesn't save. But the law does have a restraining effect. And all of the Reformed churches have confessed the very same thing about the nature of the law. It has a restraining effect. And again, this parallels our, our public witness. And I don't think I, again, I don't have to persuade you that our world is, shall we say, deficient in order and structure. I don't need to have charts and graphs and show you the, the evidence, I don't think. I think you will stipulate that fact, right? Our, our culture is out of control. And, and much of the disorder begins at an individual heart level. Ordinary passions have not been subdued. I mean, how many videos have you seen of someone going into a retail establishment with a big trash bag and just filling things up and walking out the door? Well, that, that's a, certainly a, a, a larceny issue. It's a criminal issue. But first and foremost, someone was never taught you don't have a right to just take whatever you want. It's not the way the world works. You're not allowed to just say whatever you wish, whenever you wish. So back to some of our questions. What happens if we invert the authority structure in the home? If these are some of the reasons why it's a necessity for parents to be in a place of authority, what happens if that gets turned upside down? and children are in a place of authority. You may want to elaborate on an earlier answer. Somebody said chaos earlier, and I thought that's, that's a huge descriptor. It's anarchy, isn't it? 
It's lawlessness. And as we saw in Titus, the problem in Crete was lawlessness. Even the ones who claimed to know what the law said were denying their profession by their works. They were detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. And, and Paul says the remedy here is instruction in sound doctrine. And, and then pressing that doctrine in so that it's applied, first of all, at the household level. In the very first sphere. Titus goes on <clears throat> to talk about these things working out in, in a broader scope of society. But again, first of all, the appointment of elders, competent teachers, faithful church, and the household. Now let's think through, in our, in our time remaining, what are some things that might indicate that something is disordered with respect to this authority structure in your home? What are some indications or things that might indicate that your, your authority as a parent is not what it ought to be? What say you? Lack of peace. <laughs> Mine's always like a library, all the time. No. <laughs> no, you're right. A, a lack of peace. Yeah. Because what happens when there's no... Maybe in, in, the, in the geopolitical stage, when there's no superpower, what happens? Proliferation of little tyrants, right? Happens in a home too, doesn't it? What else? What other indications that maybe your authority as a parent is not being exercised as it ought to be? Mm. Is there a deference in their speech and attitude to their parents? Lack of obedience. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly as, as the children get older, and, I, and I've said this many, many times in different contexts, and, and it's true with boys and girls. There's something with boys in particular, I think, when their eyeballs get farther from the floor than their mother's eyeballs, something happens. And a boy begins to think he's something. And he needs a dad whose eyeballs are probably still higher than his to say, not on my watch. Not only will you not speak to your mother that way, you're not going to speak to my wife that way. And so there needs to be that authority to check those kinds of, this is the flesh. And even, even with a, quote, good kid, even, even a regenerate son or daughter, you're going to have those kinds of testing. Some of that's normal. Doesn't mean it's right, but it's, it's normal. We're not talking about gross disobedience and, and, and gross rebellion in, in the ordinary spheres of what we're going to deal with in, in all of our homes. These are not exceptional circumstances. This is every home is going to deal with this to some degree. 
other other areas or other other things that might indicate that your authority in the home isn't being exercised correctly. Yeah. Uh huh. Exactly right. And that can be true at any age, can't it? Yeah, exactly right. Where, where the, 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 the felt needs of a child, your home becomes seeker sensitive, in a sense. You know, be, what, what, are the, what do the kids want? And, and we, we curtail, kowtow to those things. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's 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 huge. Um, there's not a sense of of belonging or or identity as primary with the family. Yeah. Um, a couple that I, that are also maybe not as obvious, but well, the first one is is more obvious, but. Some things to provoke you in some ways. The first one is, is an unwillingness of a child to yield. Whether it's a young child who refuses to stop crying. And I'm not talking about a child who's hurt. I'm not talking about... And you moms are better at this than, than us dads. You, you, you moms can identify 47 different cries and, and know the precise meaning of each one. And I, I, I'm not mocking. That's, that's wonderful. That's a God-given attribute. Dads began to pick up on a little bit of that, and we can discern an angry cry from a busted lip. You know, we, we, can, dis, we can discern some of those things. So I'm not talking at all about a child who's hurt. Um, I, I'm talking about a child who refuses to yield. This, this is, a child is, is either angry or excessively sorrowful. And there is a, there is a time when that's, it's, it's, it's excessive. Um, we, we've got to move on. Um, I know your balloon broke, uh, it popped, or the ice cream cone spilled. You know what? I know this is a hard lesson to learn it too. But all of your life, your balloon's going to get popped. Your ice cream cone's going to fall. And you've got to learn how to deal with that. And that's a hard lesson. But who's going to teach it to them if we don't? And sometimes those are, it may be more painful sometimes for us as parents. To work through that. But a child that will not yield, so something that refuses to stop crying or screaming, or there's a particular behavior that they, they won't yield, they won't cease that. that. That's an indication that you're not in charge. The child is. If a child will not relent from a particular negative attitude, you know, maybe you've, you've attempted to discipline, but it's the, okay, Outwardly, I'm submitting, but inwardly, I am not. And again, that's a wide range of ages now we're talking about, isn't it? But if, if that, those are an indication, perhaps, that you're not in charge. You've yielded your authority. Here's another one, again, less, 
maybe less obvious. But if you are anxious or afraid of how your child is going to respond to something, kind of along the lines of what you said, Joey, where it's a child-centered, where parents become, I don't don't know what my child's going to think about that. I'm not crass. I'm not saying who cares what they think, but that's not the driving factor, is it? My my, my kids are planning on this, and and we're going to change the plans. Sometimes that happens. But again, what are, we, what are we ultimately training our children for? Real, real life. And real life as Christians. But sometimes we're disappointed that things don't work out the way we wanted them to. And it's a hard lesson to learn at two or four, but how much harder is that to learn at 22? That life doesn't work out like you want it to sometimes. So if you're afraid, if you're anxious, or if you fret or give an, un, un, an inordinate amount of thought to how is your child going to, to respond to correction. If as a parent, you're having to psych yourself up to go have a conversation with your son or daughter, that's an indication that something might be off. Uh, and again, I think the, the sober, careful parent will want to pray and think carefully about how do I go and have this conversation. That's, that's, that's one thing. One who's Afraid. What if they respond this way? What if they cry? What if they throw a fit? If you're inordinately anxious about those kinds of things, it may very well be an indication. You need to be exercising an authority in a way that your child will, will better understand. Or if you're going to deny a child uh, a privilege or... Uh, even if it's something that, that is legitimately desired and wanted, but for whatever circumstances, whatever reason, in this moment, we can't do that. And you're, you're afraid or you're anxious about telling the child no. Here's another one. Uh, the last one I'll, I'll, I'll give to you, and you may think of some others before we leave, but if you are frequently angry toward your children, if you are frequently angry, often that has more to do with you than them. Because it's usually an indication, as, as if I'm angry at my children, it's because as a dad, as a father, I haven't dealt with something. I've allowed it to fester. And if we will deal with it gently, sweetly, calmly, in the moment, and, and with the little ones, it's just, there needs to be a correction, a swift correction. Daddy said, no, I'm in it. Now we're happy and joyful again, because it's, it's over. There's no, there's no protracted conversation. But when that builds, and it builds, and it builds, and then you find yourself losing your temper, raising your voice, or exercising physical discipline in, in anger, which never should be done. If, if you're finding yourself angry frequently towards your children, that may indicate an issue with authority that needs to be dealt with as a parent. That may be more of a... Remember I said at the very beginning, this is parenting and child training? Um, and that's a hard lesson for us as parents too, isn't it? And, and so, I mentioned in the, the first session, I think I mentioned it last time as well, My desire in this is is to help search the scriptures together and present some things to you 
um, understood through the, the lens of, of my own experience with, with six kids, but not as an expert, not as one who said, look at all the ways I've gotten this right and learned from me and all the ways I've gotten it right. Sometimes, and maybe you're like this, sometimes we learn more when we've done it wrongly <laughs> than we do when we've done it right. And so, if, if each of my kids were given, adult and younger, were given the opportunity to come and rebut and say, well, now wait a minute. <laughs> Sounds good when you say it, but that's not how you always practiced it. And they would be right. They would be absolutely right. But our measuring stick is ultimately the Word of God. What is right? And, and so when we think about these things, when we think about the necessity of authority, it does lend us also to the question of abuse. Um, I think we, it's, it's, it's inevitable that the question comes up. Sometimes it comes up from scoffers uh, who, who don't want any authority at all. They're anarchists who say, well, the answer to abuse is to get rid of any authority. There shouldn't be headship in the home, either from a husband to a wife or from parents to their children, because people will abuse. It is true. It is true that people will abuse. But that doesn't undo what God has commanded, does it? And so we as Christians, we, have a, we, should, we should have a, a double offense. Um, this, the specter of abuse should offend us in multiple ways, but two in particular. One, it ought to offend us because of the one who is abused, for the sake of the victim. Unfortunately, that's where our culture tends to stop, even in, in the kind of the uh, Christian abuse ministries and, and, and that orbit. That tends to be where it stops. It's not a bad thing. We want to think about the victim. But there is another measure, another argument for the Christian being offended when we see abuse or hear of abuse. And that is that the image of God, not only in the person being victimized, but in the institution itself. God who made the family. And God designed the family to work in a certain way. And so it is not only an offense against the one being abused, but is an offense against God himself as the author, the architect of the ordinance of the family. So how do we as, as Christians respond, and, and there's, there's far more than, than I can say in just a, a very short time, but one, we ought to condemn it. We ought to condemn it verbally, publicly, vocally. Um, there should be no place in, in a church uh, for ab ab abusive conduct. It, it should be grounds for church discipline. Uh, there, there ought to be, if, if children, wives, others in places of subordination, if they can't have a harbor and a place of refuge in the church of Jesus Christ, where will they find it? So we as God's people ought to be first and foremost willing to advocate for those who've been abused. We also though, we cannot as God's people throw out principles of biblical justice that require more than just innuendo or accusation in order to establish a matter. There are patterns and principles of justice that have to be 
uh, that have to be honored, which means necessarily the church is not the right, is not the God-given sphere to investigate criminal matters. Um, I've had to be a mandatory reporter on more than one occasion now to law enforcement, to Department of Family Services, CPS. Um, I take that duty very seriously. And I think all of us should. It is not the purview of the church to investigate those things. Um, if we have a, the state of Texas employs roughly a, a, a reasonable person standard, if a reasonable person suspects and has firsthand knowledge of abuse, there's a duty. And you know what? Everybody in the state of Texas is a mandatory reporter. In some states, it's certain, certain positions, doctors, teachers, um, anyone licensed by the state. Now, in Texas, if you're licensed by the state and your license requires you to work with children, so a teacher, counselor, uh, something like that, you have 72 hours. But everyone, by statute in the state of Texas, is a mandatory reporter. And so it is, it is the job of the church to support, to encourage, to comfort, to minister spiritually, but it is the role of the civil magistrate to bear the sword in God's name. And so we, as God's people, need to abide by that. We, need, we should not, and, and listen, I, I know very well that our civil authority is uh, imperfect. There are pitfalls there. there are, it is fraught with challenges. Um, our sister Ariel, that was here this morning, works for CPS, and even in just a very short time, um, has, has, has seen firsthand. There, there are difficulties within the system itself. Um, and, and, and as homeschoolers, you probably have all heard horror stories about, you know, the authorities showing up at some innocent homeschool family's door and taking their children away. I'm not saying that never happens, but those are typically overblown. It's very, very, very rare. What I have seen firsthand far too many times is real abuse is happening and the state doesn't act. The state does not do what God has it, what given it to do to punish evildoers and to protect those who cannot protect themselves. Uh, so we, as, as a church, I, as, as a pastor, will take that very seriously, um, that we will, will report uh, abuse to the, to the appropriate civil authorities and will actively participate in that. Um, I'll close there. Uh, that's, that's plenty for this, this evening. Again, that... that topic of, of abuse could be expanded upon and multiplied many, many lectures over. But I think it's important to recognize that in a fallen world, this is a reality. But it ought never be so among the people of God. And we are admonished over and over again in the scriptures not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, right? And so when we think of things like Am I persistently angry at my children? Don't let that go. That's like having a, you know, a, a lump that shows up somewhere on your body. And they, eh, it's probably not that serious. You better get it checked out. If you find yourself persistently angry with your children, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Think with sober judgment. Get it checked out. Um... Don't, don't assume that that will not escalate or that you won't find yourself disciplining in, in anger. 
which is not the way God intended. Exactly. Um, the, the, the marriage and parenting will actually be, I had to look, because I was saying, yeah, be off. No, it's, it's actually two sessions from now. Next, next time, yes, next time is, is the parental priorities. What is it that, as, as we begin to make the turn, and I don't like the distinction, I don't like using the term, well, this is practical stuff, because doctrine is always practical. And, and I hope that as we labor together to lay a, a, a doctrinal or theological foundation, which is the model that Paul used with Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine, and then help them apply that. But as we make that, that turn and begin more specifically thinking about how do we apply these things, we'll look next time at, at parental priorities. What, what, is, what are things that we, we need to focus on first? As we think about the, the, the doctrines and we see, okay, our, our children come to us as sinners, uh, as, as, as devoid of any capacity for spiritual good towards God. Um, and, and, and then we are given the task of exercising an authority. Well, the legitimate question that immediately follows is, what does that look like? H- how do we do that? What, what, what are we to prioritize? Um, so we're going to kind of work like we're working into a funnel. Still broad, still bigger picture. But then we're going to work towards more specific things. Uh, over the next couple of sessions. But next, next week, we'll begin to start with that, the bigger end of the funnel. What does this look like? What are things that, that we have to prioritize in our homes? What are things that, some things we can, or audioforo, you can do that or not do that. It's indifferent. Other things, you know, this, this is a necessity for the Christian parent. If this is where we want our children to, to go, this is where we want them to be in five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. What must we do today in order for that to become a reasonable hope? Any final questions? I had a friend like that, yeah. Tell your friend to be patient. I mean, I, no one's <laughs> That's part of your friend's problem, I understand. I have a friend just like that, by the way. Yeah. All right. Uh huh. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yes. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
<laughs> well, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of like the Paul speaking to the civil authorities and the Scripture's use of the image of a sword. And there is a place where that's very literal. Um, we don't do executions by sword much anymore. Uh, it's kind of fallen out of favor here. But representatively, it's the death penalty. But we also recognize that under God's authority, the civil magistrate has a range of other devices at their disposal as well to punish the evildoer. And in a similar way, a parent has to have, uh, let's say, a well-stocked arsenal of various implements, of various consequences, and sometimes we have to get creative as parents. Um, when we talked in the first lecture about the diversity in our children, we'll find that the same tool that worked with one doesn't work with the other. Um, we don't have to be egalitarian in our homes in the sense that everybody's the same. We can discriminate. We can. Because this didn't work with that one. We can do this. Um, this one really responds well to, you know, no supper tonight. Oh, no. You know, it's the worst thing in the world to think about. Others are like, oh, I don't care. And you got to know your kids, don't you? And so with those older kids, requires an even greater degree of creativity in terms of enforcing your, your authority. And, and I'm, I'm convinced that as long as they're under your roof, no matter what their age, there's a degree of authority. It's not the same. We can't treat a 20-year-old under our roof the same as, as, a, uh, as a two-year-old. We shouldn't. But there still has to be a deference. And if there's not, well, maybe it's time for them to have their own place where they can be the king of that castle because there can't be two kings in this one. And those are much harder things to work through, but, but there is, and, and that's not necessarily always a confrontational thing. That's, that's sometimes just that this is, we're at a stage where this, this needs to, how do we help you get there? How do we as your parents help you um, to get to this because it's not profiting anyone to remain in the same, status quo isn't profiting anyone. And, and I'm not answering a specific, I'm talking about your friend. I'm not answering specific things at all, um, more, more generalities. <laughs> they may not know everything, but your mom knows a little bit, I can tell you that. <laughs> And sometimes it's not even, strictly speaking, a matter of authority. It's a matter of cooperation. You're, you're, you're a citizen in this household. Um, you have duties to your neighbors. And, and if you're not willing to, to, you know, if you get out on the highway, and you're, you're not willing to stay in your own lane. If you're not willing to stop at the stop sign. If you're not willing to, to, to obey the laws of the land, what should happen? You don't get to drive on the roads anymore. If you just won't do this. And so... In, in our in our home, especially with older kids, sometimes it's not even about authority. It's about 
you know, you're, you're working late, just let us know. It's a courtesy. More than, than you have to submit to me in this, it's exercise the same kind of a, a courtesy that you would exercise to a future spouse or even to a roommate. So, all right, we're, we're running long. I, mean, I know there are other questions, and, and the, the way, way this is set up, hopefully in, in our Zoom sessions, our Zoom session in two weeks, we'll have more while you're sitting on your couch or your favorite chair. We can run a little bit longer there. I don't mind that. Um, but on Sundays, just in, in, in respect for, especially the younger kids, it's a long day. And uh, I want to be respectful of that. Uh, we could stay here for another hour and, and probably have a really good discussion. But I don't want to abuse that privilege. And so let's get you on down the road and, and on to your evenings. Let me, let me pray for us. And if you have questions that didn't, you didn't get a chance to, to work through tonight, write it down, save it. It's not, it's not your last chance. It's not speak now or forever hold your peace. Father, we are grateful for your word, for the wisdom that begins with our fear of you. And I, I pray that as parents, that would be foremost and central in our minds is a reverential fear of our God, that we would seek to honor you, to obey you, and, and that our children would as much catch that from us as it is taught to them by us. That in our example, in our deportment, in our engagement with them and with others, that they would see parents who are eager to understand the Word of God and submit themselves to it. Help us as to, be, to be consistent in those things and not to play the hypocrite in our homes, asking our children to do those things which we ourselves are unwilling to do. Help us to be sympathetic with their weaknesses, uh, recognizing that our, that our children are learning and growing. Help us to cultivate a, a patience and a perseverance. Help us in those ways to imitate our Heavenly Father who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.